Thank you so much for having me. It is a real privilege to be with you all today. I bring greetings from New York City. Uh, On behalf of my son Judah, who's traveling with me, as well as my friend and brother from Abounding Grace, Christian Monzon, who's with me as well. Um, My task this morning is to give, I think, a biblical context for the conversation that we're going to have throughout the day. And specifically to unpack the idea of prayerful engagement. What does it mean to both pray and act, to do it simultaneously? But before we do that, I want to give a little context by way of some background uh, that informs my view and my understanding of what we're going to be talking about today. Next year, 2017, will be my 35th year of ministry. I know I don't look old enough to have been in ministry 35 years, but it is the result of the Pentecostal tradition that I was born into. They start us young. And so for the last 35 years, since 1982, when my parents began Abounding Grace Ministries in uh, New York City's Lower East Side, I was the oldest of three sons who were part of that ministry context. In order to understand what we're going to be looking about at today, at least from my vantage point, it's impossible to do that without a quick snapshot of the community where we serve New York of the original 13 colonies was the only colony settled without any religious pretense. The Dutch who came to New York City came for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to make a buck. And ever since the Dutch came to make a buck, that's been the defining characteristic of our city and our state, right? Not only did they come to make a buck... But the Lower East Side, which is the community where our ministry is rooted, was the area where the immigrant poor would settle. They'd come in through Ellis Island, and then they would cross over into Manhattan, and they would end up in the Lower East Side. The Lower East Side, to give you a visual context, if you've ever seen the movie Gangs of New York, right? that's the Hollywood version of, of what the Lower East Side was like for centuries, Wave after wave of immigrant poor would come, and that's where they would end up. Today, the Lower East Side is the front lines of gentrification. There is a 38 multiple between the residents, the lifelong generational residents of the Lower East Side, and our new neighbors. What does that mean, 38 multiple? Right, The Lower East Side is the neighborhood in the country where the very first public housing projects were built in the 1930s and 1940s. And so as the immigrant poor would come, for centuries they lived in in shanties, in horrible squalor. And then as part of the New Deal, they tore down all the slums and they constructed what was pretty revolutionary for its day, public housing projects. Right, And so we've got housing projects all over the community. The average resident of public housing in New York City lives below $10,000 a year. Not, I'm sorry, not the entire city, but the borough of Manhattan. As a lifelong New Yorker, I cannot fathom what it would be like to live on $10,000 a year. It's just incomprehensible to me that people can actually survive like that. And yet, the bottom 25% of Manhattanites live on that amount of money. 
the top 25% of Manhattanites live with an average annual income of $380,000 a year. That's the 38 multiple. And the front lines for that duality, that, that bipolar reality, is our community. So you've got on one side of the street the housing projects, and on the other side of the street the private residences where a studio apartment is going to cost you six hundred grand for like tiny space. <laughs> like this is luxurious in a New York City studio apartment. And so that's the context from which I come at this. Not only, though, is it an economic one, it's an ethnic and racial one. For generations and centuries, the immigrants that settled in the Lower East Side were either uh, originally slaves and then other European immigrant groups. But for the better part of a century, it's been predominantly Latino and black who live in the entrenched Uh, generational poverty condition of the projects. And it's not the Latinos and blacks who are living across the street. And so you've got this ethnic contest, this racial contest, that is very much defined in economic terms. Last April, I had the privilege for the first time of visiting Israel. And I had some incredible experiences in Israel, but the one that was for me my defining moment was when we were in Nazareth. And in Nazareth, there's this precipice, right? It's referenced one time in scripture that I'm aware of, but we went and we visited the precipice in Nazareth, and as we arrived, the Jezreel Valley, which is below the precipice, was filled with fog and clouds. So we were literally on top of this giant cloud. And looking out, because of the cloud cover, we had no real context for the scale of this precipice. And then, providentially, I think, Hollywood couldn't have timed it better. As we're standing on the edge, the cloud cover moved out and opened up the expanse of the Jezreel Valley. And on the other edge of the valley was Mount Carmel, where Elijah called down fire from heaven. And just on the opposite side of Mount Carmel was the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus went up with his disciples and encountered God and Moses and that whole experience, right, that he, that he had there. And we're standing on the edge looking out, over this 800-foot cliff. And as we're looking out, it reminded me of that passage that introduces the place for us. And it's in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus has come out of his wilderness experience, where he had fasted and been tempted. He had just been baptized. It was the beginning of his ministry. And he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's in the synagogue, and he grabs the scroll... And in Luke chapter 4, he reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The passage continues to say that he closes the scroll and he sits down. But before he sits, he adds one statement of editorial commentary. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. 
The response of the worshipers, the response of the religious establishment was shock and horror. But not just shock and horror that was rhetorical in nature. They took him, they proceeded to take him from the worship service, bring him to the precipice in Nazareth, and they were ready to throw him over the edge. Because he dared proclaim good news for the oppressed. Because he dared proclaim good news for the poor. Because he dared proclaim sight for the blind. And the fact that he didn't just speak about it the way we do so often on Sunday, where it's a passage we recite rather than a life we engage, put him at risk. Grave risk. The kind of risk that would drive him to the edge of the cliff. And we stood there on the precipice, looking out at the Jezreel Valley, 800 feet below. And suddenly, the the danger of the gospel message was driven home in a way that I had never experienced it before. Let's unpack that if we can. You can go to the first slide. Our message today is ears to hear and the courage to respond. I'm mindful that as we're gathered here, our city, our country, our states are mourning, right? I'm in a city today, you're hosting me, a city where blood has been shed, where lives have been lost, where hearts have been crushed. My own city has experienced that as well. We're on the front lines of the same struggle. It's a struggle we can relate to. And so the invitation for us today is how should we respond? The good news that Jesus introduces in Luke chapter 4 is the same message that he taught his disciples to pray. In Luke 11, they come to him and they say, Jesus, Teach us to pray. And it's the second time he proceeds to do that. The first is in the Sermon on the Mount, but evidently they forgot. So he repeats it. And in Luke chapter 11, he goes through it again. And the key verse that we're going to focus on this morning is, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next slide. Many years ago, Matt Stevens from Somebody Cares Baltimore and I, the slides are not up, so they'll hopefully be up shortly. We were uh, doing an outreach called Chain Reaction, and we had a bunch of young people, and on the first day of Chain, it was a week-long, short-term service kind of missional experience. And on the first day, they had to prayer walk the community. And we told them as they prayer walked, we wanted them to pray a remixed version of the Lord's Prayer, specifically from that verse. We said, how do you know that the kingdom is demonstrated on earth as it is in heaven? What will it look like in somebody's life for the kingdom to actually interrupt their regular course of business, right? And in that conversation, we said, what better evidence of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven than an answered prayer? Everywhere we go, there is somebody praying for something. There's a grandmother praying for her grandchild. There's uh, uh, somebody who's hungry praying for something to eat. There are people in need all around us. And so we, we remixed that passage in Luke 11, 
to say, help me be an answer to someone's prayer today. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear what you see and hear and the courage to respond. In the 12 or 15 years since, that's become like the foundation. I probably shouldn't admit this. One of the foundational elements of my devotional life. God, help me be an answer to someone else's prayer today. And I dare you to pray prayers like that. In my experience, that's the prayer that's answered most often. There's a lot of prayers I pray and I wonder, God, did he even hear me? That's one I never had to ask. Because the most bizarre situations arise when you walk around with that frame of reference. So to start us off, I want to think about the kinds of prayers that we can be answered to in the struggle for racial justice in our country. The first kind of prayer is the prayer of lament. Lament is grief and mourning for pain and loss. It's captured in Psalm chapter 13. How long must I have sorrow in my heart? In our country, we have a 400-year history of racial violence. And it's not past history. Like, it's active and it's alive. My city right now has been described, actually, Trump Towers, right, where our new president lives, his home, currently is described as a fortress, right, because of the con- under siege, actually, is how it was put in the newspaper. It's a fortress under siege because of the unrest, the frustration, the pain, the suffering, the fear that our country is currently feeling. But it's a 400-year history of legalized racial violence that began with slavery and Native American conquest, but it continued through internment camps and Jim Crow segregation and the war on drugs and mass incarceration. It continues in other ways too, like the disproportionate impacts of abortion, right? It continues in the bloodlust of our entertainment culture, where our kids are saturated with images of violence every day, and then we wonder why they don't put away the guns. We've equipped them with shooting games from the womb, it seems, and then we don't understand the why that draw is irresistible for them. Psalm chapter 13 puts it in perspective. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep In death. And it continues. The lament is a prayer that people want answered. And when our response to lament is get over it. Guess what has not interrupted that person's life. That's not good news. For somebody who is in pain and in mourning. That's not good news. They want somebody who's going to 
lament alongside? Who's going to empathize? Who's going to connect? But not stay there because the promise of the gospel is healing. It's not that you have to stay in that state forever. There is hope. So the second kind of prayer is healing. Healing is comfort and justice for the grieving. Psalm 103 captures this idea. The Lord works justice for the oppressed. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Lord, let me be an answer to that kind of prayer. How can I have ears to hear the heart and become that kind of solution, that, that solve, that ointment, that anointing that can bring that kind of healing? The third kind of prayer is a prayer of repentance. A prayer that acknowledges our complicity in the history. It's not something we can absolve ourselves of because we weren't slave owners or whatever our excuse might be. The prayer of repentance captured in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. A lot of times you read that and that's kind of where we stop. But the linchpin is what comes next and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Then after that act of repentance, when people are hurting and we're listening, it's another opportunity to repent, to turn from the wickedness that we've become complicit in. The fourth prayer is the prophetic prayer. The prophetic prayer is inspired by righteous indignation and a holy discontent for what is to come. It's not yet here, but it is to come. It's that promise of deliverance, the promise of healing and hopefulness. And it's captured in Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Now Ezekiel, remember, Old Testament prophet. He wasn't threatened by the prospect of racism and xenophobia. He was actually living among exiles. They were the victims of conquest. They had been robbed from their home. They had been robbed from their possessions and all that they knew had been taken involuntarily across the desert, and they were living in the valley of of Kaibar, I believe it's called. And in this place of desperation, God speaks. It says in verse 2, He led me back and forth among them, among the valley of bones. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? 
Ezekiel felt like it was a trick question. Of course they can't live in my understanding of life. But you, O oh Lord, you know, you, you alone would know, his response was. In verse 4 he continues, Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You want evidence of dry bones in our churches? The New Testament says that when the least part of the body hurts, the whole body should hurt. But when the whole body doesn't hurt, it's because there's something wrong with the tendons and the nervous system. There's a disconnect. We've allowed parts of the body to become detached from the rest. And so we don't feel their pain. And that's evidence of dead bones. He says, will these bones live? Prophesy to them so that the tendons will reattach. So that they'll, they'll stop being disconnected and they'll become reunited. He says, then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Another evidence of lifeless bodies is, I can't breathe. When the breath has been squeezed out of a body... It's dead. And here we've got a situation now where they've reattached. The flesh has reappeared, but there's still no breath. The bodies are lying lifeless on the floor. Screaming, echoing in our head, I can't breathe. Verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. The promise is that these disconnected Christians, these bones that are lifeless, strewn about in the valleys of our cities, this blood that's been spilled, the brokenness of our communities, the promise is if we prophesy to those communities, if we speak life over those communities, not rage and vengeance and the things that would continue to perpetrate death, but if we speak life and breath and we fight for it, an army will arise that will make it so. That's the prophetic utterance of justice workers. Ezekiel had the option in the valley. He could have stayed silent like everybody else. But the invitation was to speak life. And as he spoke life, it came and the connections reemerged and the breath returned. In that spirit of prayerfulness, I want to recommend five courageous actions. When we pray like that, 
our ears are open, we begin to discern opportunities to serve. What happens now? You're discerning it. God, give me eyes to see and ears to hear what you see and hear and the courage to respond. What are those bold actions? The first bold action, if you want to be a bridge builder, if you want to be one of those tendons reconnecting disjointed body parts, rediscover the humanity of other. The other is not our adversary. Believe it or not, they're not all jerks. Some of them might act like jerks, but even they are somebody's son, somebody's daughter, somebody's father or mother. There's a human element in every one of them. That's why Jesus, time and again, when he's describing the evidence of the kingdom, he says, love your enemies. You can't love somebody that you don't fundamentally value the dignity of the Imago Dei that God created them to reflect. No matter how far they've fallen, no matter how much of a jerk they act like, there's something redeemable in that person. The first bold action is rediscover that redeemable human being. Even in the oppressor. The second bold action Talk less and listen more. Listen. Something behind the action, their action, their offense, their oppression is motivating that. The act of oppression is the symptom. It's what's on the surface. And to the extent we keep responding to the symptoms, we remain entrenched in this spot of brokenness. We perpetuate the cycle of violence. The cycle of hostility. And we remain surrounded by a bunch of dead bones. Let's listen more. When we've discovered the humanity, we'll be able to surface the story. The third bold action. Stop arguing with them. Right? I mean, right now, the election's over. Somebody won and somebody lost. For some of us, it kind of sucks. For others, they're having a good time. We were reminded all year by the first lady, when they go low, you go high. Courageous action is to stop arguing. Demonstrate class and dignity even when they won't. Because as we demonstrate class and dignity, we call them to a higher level. The level of good news. The level of the kingdom. The level of a kingdom that is being demonstrated on earth as in heaven through the testimony and the power of your life. The fourth bold action, love and serve. In the context of this, find ways to love well. Find ways to serve well. In the kingdom manifesto called the Sermon on the Mount, right? That seemingly stream of conscious description of what the world will look like when the kingdom shows up. Jesus kicks it off 
First, with the kingdom core values, we call them the Beatitudes. And then with two images, salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Notice he specifies salt as a seasoning agent. Not salt as currency or salt as a preservative or all the other myriad uses of salt in first century Palestine. Specifically, he speaks about it as a seasoning agent. I know I'm surrounded by people who love well-seasoned food, right? The reason salt is an essential ingredient in every global cuisine is not its flavor profile. Because if you apply salt in a heavy-handed way, nobody wants to eat it. The reason salt is an essential ingredient in every global cuisine is because of the chemical property of salt that enhances the flavor of whatever it penetrates. Beef is beefier when it's properly seasoned. Right? Sugar is sweeter when it's properly seasoned. All the great pastry chefs will tell you the secret to a good dessert is a pinch of salt. Because it makes the sugar come to life. He says when we stop making the world around us better, when we stop contributing to the march for justice, when we stop demonstrating good news in our lives, then you are good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I'm convinced that most of what the American church describes as persecution is simply the inevitable foot trampling Jesus promised. Because we stopped adding value to the world around us. He continues, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Notice he doesn't say, let your light shine that they might see your grand buildings, the splendor of your architecture, The pedigree of your resume, the books you have published, this arenas you have spoken in, the light that draws people to the Father is the good deeds of our lives. It's the way we reconnect with the humanity and other people by making the world around us a better place. Courageous action demands nothing less. Finally, the fifth act of courage, which I'm only including given the week that we're in. Don't stone the messenger. Stop cloaking politics in religion. God is not a Republican and he's not a Democrat. God isn't rooting for or surprised by the winner of a political contest. So every time we run around and equate a particular candidate 
with a gospel message, we're demeaning the gospel. We've taken a transcendent message and made it temporal. We've dirtied it in the mud and the mire of human sin. He says, call people to a higher set of self, a higher expectation of possibility. And we do that when our the the we we do that when the example of our lives becomes so irre, irresistible and attractive that people want more. The other thing about salt, when something is properly seasoned, it makes you want more. It activates the salivary glands or whatever that's called, right? Literally, there is a chemical reaction, not just in the food it penetrates, but in the body that consumes it, where you want more of it. When we're properly seasoning the gospel with grace, when we're demonstrating the the attractiveness of a God who cares about justice, when that's not just rhetoric on a Sunday in a pulpit, but it defines the character of our choices every day. We become irresistible. People want more of that kind of good news. That's the good news that transforms. It's a good news that is risky. It's the good news that drove Jesus to the edge of the cliff and ultimately took him to the cross. But that's the work that changes the world around us. When we enter into that reality, we can speak to the breath. We can speak to the bones. And we can see life reemerge in a hopeless situation. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you.